Father, I feel like we come in and we sing songs and deep within our heart we mean those things. I know we do. But I pray they would go even further beyond just well intentions or, or meaning. But Father, would you begin to make these truths real in our lives that we sing about what we believe about you and how we live our lives. Would you be powerful and in through your Holy Spirit, would your word be something that we enjoy today that is it ministers to our heart that it, it's water to our soul please in your precious name we pray amen all right have a seat well all of you that are in here that normally are over at sunday school right now or your middle school or elementary like welcome to hanging out with old people i mean how cool is that you get to hang out with old people today that's awesome now, I'm really stoked to have you in there, but let me, let me try to see if I can catch everybody up so that we can kind of understand where we've been so that we can even understand where we're going today because we're going to tackle something today that I think is so important, which is we're going to try to understand the idea of what is sin in a greater way. I think we have a, maybe for all of us, we have a misunderstanding of what sin is, and that includes me, that I, we have to constantly have renewed and, and re-explained and, and re-embraced, but the first thing that we did is if we've been studying the book of Isaiah is that we, we laid out in chapters 1 through 2 where everything was going, specifically that there was this guy, Isaiah, who was alive back, you know, well over almost 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, in which God came to him and gave him, and the word that he talked about was a vision. And we talked about vision not being that his eyes rolled back into his head and he started to shake and to shudder. That's not what we mean by vision. What God granted to him was the capacity and the ability to see things as they really are. That's what a vision is, is that when he was given this by God, then he wrote his vision because he wanted the people then, and I would even say us now, he wants us to see life as it really is, not as we perceive it or as others perceive it and tell us how it is, but specifically how God sees it. Now with that then, I feel the most important thing that we could do, and that's what we've done for the last four weeks, and I was like so glad just to be sitting there absorbing it in, is to gain as best as we're able a vision or a correct view of the reality of God. And I don't know if you remember, but about four weeks ago, Christian began to take us into the throne room of God in Isaiah 6 and just let us stand before this awesome and holy and wonderful God. And in standing before him, we also then got to see the response of an Isaiah as he encountered this holy living God. But if you remember right, he also ran into a loving God. And I love the way that he explained this idea of how it was then that God forgave him and made him clean. Like I really do think one of the biggest problems that I face and I think you face is we try to to figure out how to see reality is we have to constantly be reminded of who this great, awesome, holy, wonderful God is. And then the next thing that came out two weeks ago is, is that Chris took us to the deep end of the pool and he started to venture down this idea of God's sovereignty. Now, I do think that one of the best things to do whenever you go down it is to study it, to, to try to understand it, to grapple with it. But let me just say this. No matter how intelligent you are or how perceptive you are or how well your senses are attuned, 
you will never fully grasp God's sovereignty. And whenever we hit those moments where we don't know what to do with the truth that's beyond our senses or our intellect, that is those moments where we fall to our knees and we just proclaim to our God, you are this unknowable, unsearchable God that sits in unapproachable light. And we tell others the same. We're just meant to sit there and be blown away by it. But in it, I hope the thing that you caught, and here's the thing that we're going to do, is we're going to use this chair. I know it doesn't look like a throne, but just go with me, okay? Use your imagination. We're about to do VBS. And so you're just going to use your imagination. This is the thing that we've tried to convey about God, is there is a God who is living. He is true. He sits in unapproachable light. And the beauty of this God, when we understand sovereignty, and we're just going to represent it with a throne because we don't know exactly what God looks like. But we're going to represent it in this way, is that our God sits enthroned. That means when he's sovereign, just so we can understand it, Chris looked at this idea of salvation, but when we say that our God is sovereign, that means he's in control of all history, he's in control of all the epics and times, he's in control of every nation, he causes leaders to rise, he causes leaders to fall, he causes nations to come about, and he causes nations to go away. Our God is in control of all things. That's what we mean by sovereign. This is what Isaiah, again, now if you're someone that is sitting there and you haven't been here, maybe you're one of the elementary school students or the the middle school students, just know this. When we talk about God, he sits on the throne and what that means is, is there is nothing outside of his control. Everything is superseded and overseen by him. Now that becomes so important, especially again, if we look at at Chris's definition that he brought up. Oh, I didn't realize I was so far behind. There we go. Is that when we say God has the rightful authority, the freedom, the wisdom, the power to bring about everything that he intends to happen, that is a huge statement. And therefore, everything he intends to come about does come about. Another huge statement, which means God plans and governs all things And this is really, if I were to say, what is Isaiah trying to get us to understand about God? This is the big thing. Our God reigns and is in control. Now, what I want to do with that, though, is then try to wrestle through. So what is sin if that's the true definition of it? If this is really what it means for God to be sovereign, then we have to begin to then grapple with What is it then exactly sin? If he's truly this one who's the king and ruler of all things, if God reigns absolutely over his his creation, then it is important then for us to sit down and think, okay, if that's true, then what's sin? Well, if I were to explain sin, I would explain it this way. If he's truly the king, that means we have a tendency then to come in and two, almost, and this is the way I would put it, a guy named D.A. Carson called it de-God him, or if you're somebody that's like a Facebook, we unfriend him, right? We take him off his throne, and in some way, we put another created thing in his place. Anytime and in any way, this God who sits sovereign in unapproachable light, who is intended to be king of all, and we in our minds then in any way think, and we then, and this we're going to use D.A. Carson's word, de-God him, That is sin. In any way. Now, a lot of you might be sitting there going, my gosh, then I sin a lot. And I would say, welcome to the club. Our daily battle all of the time is to maintain a correct understanding of who God is because the moment that God begins to be degraded, we are susceptible to enter into what the Bible calls sin. 
Now, this is really important to where we're going. And so again, just so that we can kind of wrap our minds around it, what he's doing in this case is now when we talk about this sovereign God who, who knows how the world works, he knows why he created, he's knows, he knows what's best for us. Sin is basically to look at God and to say, you know what, God, I really do appreciate that, but I'm going to do my own thing. Thank you. This is what, in essence, again, sin is. Now, if we take it a step further, and again, if we kind of view it as this idea of the God and God, I think in some ways, most people in this world are more offended about all the things that are going on between human and human. In other words, we look at something like abortion, which is awful, right? We're offended by that, and we should be. We look at the way that people are treated inhumanely, and we're offended by that. But let me just throw something to you. Did you realize that every day, all the time, all of humanity in different ways is de-godding God? They have removed him from his rightful place and seen him as highly irrelevant. And that is actually the greatest offense in all of the universe. That's what the Bible says. That is the greatest offense that humanity has had the audacity to de-god God and look at him as irrelevant. Now, Paul kind of had this same thought, right? He, in Paul in Romans 1, when he was talking about this, he said, look, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And he's specifically in there when he was talking about this idea of, of de-godding God is they now worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This is the audacity of it. This is why us looking at Isaiah, it's so important. What it does is it takes the created stuff back off that throne and it removes a correct understanding of God so that we might not go down that path of sin. Is everybody with me so far? Jiving? Okay, those of you that are kids, sometimes your parents nod off. What I need for you to do is this. If they start to nod off, elbow them and say, pay attention. You got big sin problems, so pay attention, okay? I want you to do that for your parents because they got big issues. Now here's what I want to do off that. Let's then come up with a definition because I think this is important to the book of Isaiah. If this is really true, this idea of usurping the authority of God is what sin is, what Isaiah does is he talks about it from the standpoint of trust. Those that either trust in God or those that don't trust in God, those that trust in other things besides God, or they reject other things besides God to trust in him. Trust becomes a huge word. Faith becomes a huge word. So what I want to do, even though we can, we can define sin in some different ways biblically, again, it's the same thing, but we can, we can kind of come along to help us understand it. I've kind of created a definition of sin. I figured if, if Chris could create a definition of sovereignty, I will create a definition of sin. And we'll just kind of go with there. But here, here's what we're going to say it is. Sin is any action, speech, thought, or feeling that proceeds from a heart that does not trust God and instead chooses to de-God God by trusting in anything but Him. You with me? Let me read it again so we can kind of get it. Sin is any action, speech, thought, or feeling that proceeds from a heart that does not trust God and instead chooses to de-God God by trusting in anything but Him. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of explore it out, and we're going to dive into Isaiah. And if you got your Bibles, you can open up to, first, to uh, Isaiah 7, and we're going to kind of start to take a look at it. But one of the ways that we're going to take a look at it is, is oftentimes this idea of the God and God or, or the way in which we don't trust him is sometimes expressed best when all of a sudden kind of in life and in different ways and in forms we hit a crisis. 
Now you'll see this all throughout the Bible, whether we're talking about James 1, we're talking about 1 Peter 1, all these different things, even when we get into like 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, in order to not trust in myself, God brought crisis in my life so that I wouldn't depend upon me, but I would depend upon him. Crisis tends to reveal a lot about who we are and what we believe. Now, the crisis of this, and again, if you're younger, I'm going to kind of do a little history lesson. Again, your parents like to nod off. I've seen them when Chris preaches, Chris preaches, me preaches, uh, Terry preaches. So just keep nudging them to keep them together. But here's the history of what's going on so we can understand this. We know that Isaiah, from from Isaiah 6.1, he began his ministry, it says in 6.1, the year that King Uzziah died. So in other words, it's sometime around 740 B.C. or so. This is way back in the day. Now, the crisis that had hit them was from this group of people called the Assyrians. They were kind of, if you understand the Fertile Crescent, maybe those of you that are fourth and fifth, sixth grade, when do they do world history? What grade? Sixth grade? Okay. Sixth graders, I'm going to give you a test after this is done. So in this Fertile Crescent to the very east was this group of people called the Assyrians. Now, at this particular point within Israel, it had, it, had, it had a moment in which Solomon was the king after he died. It split kind of later on into two sections. There was the northern section, which had 10 tribes to it, which they kind of walked away from the covenant that was with God. They created their own capital city, Samaria. And there was the southern, which was called Judah, which they kept the capital city and they kept in covenant with God. But those are the two groups that are here by the time that we get up to 17.1. There we go. Now, the king at this particular time was Ahaz. Now, when I say in there that this was a pivotal moment or that crisis came upon them, these group of people called the Assyrians were bad news. Now, when I say that they were bad news, what we mean by that is is that it was an empire that was rising, that was growing. It was beginning to flex its muscles all around. It was gobbling up territory. But the best way that sometimes people can explain to others what the Assyrians are or were is they use words like they were the Nazis of their time. So you kind of see this, not good people. In fact, one guy even said it this way, they created and invented new ways to do evil, which would have made them worse than the Nazis. In other words, everybody at this time is freaking out. Now, if you've ever seen it before, you know what happens when we freak out. We look around us and we wonder, how could God, and this was the question that Chris was asking and he was answering, how could this God, who is a good God, who's in control of all things, how could this sovereign God allow these things to happen? And in the back of our heads, sometimes whether we know it or not, we then have this tendency, and this is what Israel did in getting into cahoots with a group of people you can see up there, the king of Syria. They thought, we're going to find other created stuff. We're going to step on the throne and we're going to make this thing happen. Well, we know that in getting on that throne, what they did was, is from 7-1, they then thought, well, let's get into coots with the Syrians who are kind of northeast of them. We also are going to go to, to Judah and say, come on, you need to be a part of us. In fact, I would say it this way. They said to them, basically, if you don't become a part of this thing, we're going to come in, we're going to take you over, remove King Ahaz, who's king at the time, put our own king in there, and you're going to be a part of us. They were, and this is the best way I could explain it, Judah was scared. Now, again, sometimes we make these things so untouchable, but you know what I'm talking about. Those moments that we are massively fearful, this is where we find out a lot about how it is that we do or we do not trust God. 
It's these moments, maybe just looking at all of us here as parents, those moments where things are kind of feeling like they're a little bit out of control. We find out what we is that we believe or we don't believe about God. For those of you that are younger in here, I remember so often, man, one of the ways that I knew that I did or I did not believe in God was how I was honest with my parents, how I was honest with other people. One of the things that I don't like about myself from my past is, is I was a terrible liar. I knew how to put a front on. Why? Because I didn't trust God. There's this side of it just to kind of make it real. They were scared. Now, every generation has it. My grandparents' generation had the literal Nazis, right? They had the Nazis. They had World War II. There was fear all over the world about what might happen if Hitler gains control. After Hitler came to power, some of you that are my parents' age, you know, even in some ways me, I was the tail end of it. Everybody remember the Cold War? Oh my gosh, I still remember them putting us underneath our desks as if going under my desk when a nuclear bomb goes off is going to save me, right? But then suddenly, on September 11th, 2001, our fear of the Cold War left us and we entered a new crisis in which we were afraid of terrorism. And everything in us, and I would say this, even in God's people, we began to be scared and we began to be afraid of things. And I would say this, we were revealed that we probably did not trust in God like we thought we did. And even right now, and I say this to just our own shame as a church, I feel that some of the most frightened people right now in the United States are Christians. I watch us running all over the place, scared to death. I watch us fearful over the money that we have. I watch us fearful over how we raise our kids. We are so scared, and we need this reminder that we don't go to created stuff. Our God sits on the throne. We don't need to be afraid, except for one thing, Him. That is the only place in which our fear is to ever go. And the crazy part about it is, is that if I fear him, I fear nothing else. This is really where Isaiah is going. He's trying to help us to understand that this way in which we trust God and the way in which we see God is essential. Again, everybody with me? I'm still going? Okay, you can say no, but then I probably won't pay attention to you anyways. But okay, here we go. Now, what happens with all of that, let me go back one, is the way that he does it, look at the very end of that verse. The king of Israel came to Jerusalem to wage war against it, look at this, but could not mount an attack against it. I love that term. As much as they tried and as much as they went after it, they were not going to be able to attack Israel because God would not allow this to happen. He was going to stop it. They couldn't amount attack against it. And the prophet was trying to get them to understand, look, from the get-go, all of these nations that have rised up against you, that you're looking at and you're afraid of, they are going to be nations, especially by the time we come to verse 2, that these people, and Ephraim is just the people of Israel, these ones that are out there are ones that are eventually going to go all away. But what happened to him? Look at verse 2. King Ahaz shook as the trees of the forest before the shake of the wind. In other words, he got scared. Now, what's so interesting about our definition of sin is, look up there, it's not just the things that we do, it's not just the things that we say, but it's our thoughts and our feelings. In fact, I would say this. Oftentimes, sin does not start in our actions and it does not start in the words that we say. It starts in our thoughts and it starts in our feelings. And he 
was scared. Now, if you're anything like me, I don't know how you are, but the moment that I sometimes hit these moments, I begin to create hypotheticals and I come up with a plan for every single hypothetical. Anybody else like me? Okay, thank you. We'll be approaching you after the service. But no, I begin to think through, what do we need to do? How do we do it? How do we get out of it? How do we, you know, begin to arrange this thing? What is it that we need to say? All these different realities, and this is exactly what's going on with him. He gets scared and begins to fret. In other words, he demonstrates that he does not trust God. This idea of fretting or worrying at the core of it is, is that I trust myself, not him. This is so crucial to understanding sin. Sin starts when all of a sudden, in some way, God, who rightfully sits on his throne, is in control of all things, gets replaced by whatever it is, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, or even our words, is that this is the idea that Isaiah is driving at to help us understand in the life of Ahaz what exactly it is that sin is. This is huge. But the thing I love about God is, is that God doesn't leave him here. Ahaz is sitting there fretting and he's sitting there worrying. And we know all the time that whenever we fret or worry, we start to come up with a plan. Now watch what happens here. This is what God says to Isaiah to go do. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. In other words, go to him, you and Shear Jashub, which is his son, which everybody should have that name. We're thinking about if we adopt another child to name him that. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now what's so significant about that? Where he had gone from is he had gone from fretting and from worrying to now creating a plan. And he wasn't thinking about God saving him. He was thinking about self-preservation. How do I save myself? In other words, he was going up to check the water out to make sure the water was okay. He was making sure that if a siege came upon them, they had everything in place to be able to withstand the siege. And God now looks at him, at Isaiah, and says, I want you to go to him there. I've got something I want you to tell him. Now, all the time, and I've had this in my life nonstop, is that all of these moments that I begin to go down these wrong paths, God consistently comes to me in different faith forms, in different fashions, and warns me, don't go down this path, don't go down this path, don't go down this path. And this is exactly what God is doing with Ahaz. He sends Isaiah to him. Now, what does he say? Look at verse 4. Be careful. I love that term. Be careful. Watch out. Do you understand what you're doing? This is serious what you're about ready to do. Once you start going down this path, sometimes you don't ever stop and come back. Are you sure that you want to do this? Is the idea is, is be careful. Watch out. Now we would say, he's just worrying, he's just checking on the water, but God is looking at it knowing you're not trusting in me, you're trusting in something else for your salvation, and I'm just warning you, watch out. Then he says this, be quiet. Now what does that mean? Like shut up? No. He means settle down. Relax. I've got you. One time my dad and I were out on a giant lake and it, for me, at least, it felt like a giant lake. It wasn't like, like Michigan or anything like that. But we're out on a tiny little boat. And all of a sudden, a huge storm came along. And I remember being out there with him, and I'm freaking out. I still remember my dad looking over at me saying, I've got you. It's okay. 
What he's saying, again, is not just so much that I, I'm king and I sit in throne, which is exactly true, but the idea of be quiet. Anytime God says to be still, to, to know exactly who I am, it's a, it's a confession of love towards the people that he's talking to. Just be quiet. Don't fear. I've got you. Don't let your heart be faint. I feel like the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking the Mormons here, I'm talking the church of Jesus Christ in the United States right now. Don't we need to hear this? We need to hear over and over, be careful. I know there's a group of different political parties telling you, and we always tend to, and I think conservative evangelicals think our salvation comes from Republicans. Your salvation does not come from Republicans. Your salvation comes from God. Now, the Democrats have left a long time ago, but we'll just say this. Our salvation is not found in a political party. Our salvation is not found in the Supreme Court. Our salvation is not found in a president. Our salvation is not found in Congress. Our salvation is not found in our governors and our state representatives. Our salvation is not found in all these other things. Our salvation alone, and he's saying to us, be careful. Be careful who you get into cahoots with. Israel eventually goes off and gets into cahoots in some ways with Assyria. They get in cahoots with the Nazis. Be careful, church. Be quiet. I would say this is one place where it does apply to the church. Shut up. Shut up on the right things, not the wrong things. We scream and we yell and, man, we complain. We're the loudest complainers sometimes on the planet about stuff that doesn't even matter. And then we don't talk when we need to talk. We need to trust. We need to not fear. And I'll tell you what I was sitting down thinking the other day. If everybody left to go to Texas and Tennessee and Idaho, not only would it be a weird commune, but who would be here in California? Don't let your heart be faint. See, these words just echo through. It's the reminder of who sits on the throne. And he says to him, I want you to go tell Ahaz that. Tell moms and dads that I've got your kiddos, even in some of the worst moments. Tell couples that I know it looks like a low moment inside of your marriage, but I've got you. Tell my people that I am king and I sit enthroned. And that doesn't mean it's not going to be scary. It doesn't mean that things are going to always go your way the way you want it to. It doesn't mean even that everyone is going to survive at the end of it. But just tell them, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Church, it is not just to them, it's to us. He says, go and you tell him that. And I love this last part because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now, what does he mean by that? These two stumps mean they've got an expiration date. 
You tell them that the God is in control of all history, the God is in control of epics and times, the God is in control of the rise and the downfall of nations. You go tell them that both of those, both of those nations, Syria and Israel, they both have an expiration date on them and it's coming to an end. In fact, within about three years, Syria fell and almost 10 years later, Israel fell right after it to the point where it was almost wiped out of existence completely. You go tell them that I'm in charge and those are just smoldering stumps of firebrands. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. It's okay. Go tell them that. That's what he's talking about. And all throughout 7, 7 through 9, if you've got your Bibles there, that's really what he's clarifying is this idea of me being in charge. And then he comes to the very end of verse 9, and I love this statement. Everybody look up to it. I hope we commit this to memory. If you are not firm in your faith, here's his warning to Ahaz. If you don't see me rightly upon this throne, as you don't see me for who I am and the God that I am who's in control of all things, who supersedes history, who causes the rise and the fall of the nations, if you don't see me this way, you will not be, look at this, firm at all. People all the time come up to me and they'll ask me, why do you think people are exiting the church at such an alarming rate? Why do people not, not, not stay around the church anymore? Well, I think some people are just leaving because they were never followers of Jesus in the first place. But I think there's other people that are leaving because we're not showing them a God who is seated on his throne. I think young people are leaving because inside of our lives as adults, they now hear us talk about this God who's in control of all things and yet our lives are so fearful and so scary. They hear us talk a lot about a God who's in control of all things and yet the way that we live our lives is so dysfunctional in comparison to the God in which he is. We live with such lies and hypocrisy and they're wondering how in the world can those two things be true, which in some ways that's just part of being human. But I don't think in many ways that those of you that are sitting here right now that are six years old, seven years old, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 95. I think we don't need more sermons on how to just survive in this world. We need to be reminded of our God. This is what God is telling Isaiah. You go tell him that. Go tell him. Verse 10, and again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through him. And I love this. Ask the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, ask for a sign. He handed him a blank check. Ask whatever you want of me. Ask me to do anything. I mean, can you imagine if God came to you and said, ask me for a sign? Oh my gosh, I was sitting around today. I was like, this morning, I was like, what sign would I ask for? Besides a million dollars, you know, I was just like, like, no, like, what sign would I ask for? Now, this is what's so crazy about verse 12, right? I'm sitting here going, oh, I think I'd be like, oh, you know, God, if, you're, if this is really true, allow me just to go stand on that water over there. I mean, wouldn't that just be like, oh. 
God, come down and bring out fire. I mean, I don't know, bring something. Cause anything to happen. A blank check. Now, this is what's so crazy about verse 12. Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord God to the test. Now, on one level, we're like, oh, look at him quote Deuteronomy 6. What a spiritual Christian. This guy's got it all together. But have you ever noticed how we as God's people can find amazing ways to explain away our faith? We have these amazing capacities and abilities to be able to come into a a certain situation and spiritualize our inability or our unwanting to be able to have faith in God. Example, how often have you sat there and you know that you're in sin and we've all been there and in being in sin, we tell ourselves in the back of our head, I don't want to now go the way God's asked me to go and we even find spiritual reasons for not doing it. We say to ourselves, you know, if I was really honest, well, then I would hurt these people. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to confess my sin because that might hurt people. I don't want to deal with my sin because you know what? There's a lot of other people that are involved in this particular thing. We need to think about everybody else. I don't want to do this because it can impact my kiddos. I want to do this. It's these nonstop reasons that we come up with. And this is exactly what Ahaz does in regard to sin. Instead of trusting God, which again, he could have done, he instead in this moment with that statement takes God off that throne And he now puts himself on there in a spiritualized way. And he says, not going to do it. I'm not going to trust God. Now, this is the core of sin. Now, what you're going to see here, and you see this in Romans 1, is the moment that we do this, the moment that we're okay with this and we put it there, it now turns into a long stream, Romans 1, in which God begins to give us over, give us over, give us over, give us over, until finally we land and splat. Be careful. Trust me. Ahaz, I've got you. Ahaz, don't trust yourself. You go down this path and you will regret to where you go. This is where you see in verse 13, finally God says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to be weary, to weary men? And look at this, that you weary my God also. In other words, what we see is God saying, all right, if you want to be on the throne, go ahead. I'll let you. Now we know at the end of this is going to be a crash. We see it and we know it. We're going to talk about next week, this is the good news. We're going to talk about judgment. We're going to also talk about hope. Is that even though we go down these paths, I love a God who is full of hope that he will allow us to crash. He will allow us to come to the end of ourselves. He will allow us what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1 to be able to realize that there's nothing left but him. He will allow us to be the prodigal so that we might find hope. 
But in all of us sitting here today, and those of you that are six and seven and eight, and you need to start right now nudging your parents. Those of you that are parents need to look down at your kids and realize this is this one grand moment where I believe God is saying out over all of us and asking us this question, in whatever circumstance or situation that you're in, do you trust me? Do you believe that I have you? Do you believe that I am going to take care of you? Maybe not in the way that you want to, but I have you. Now, I say this because this is so important, and I love the fact that we have kiddos here today because we need to talk about this. One of the areas that in my own personal life, and I feel like others, that we struggle, and in those of you that are kids, you can listen to us talk about this right now, is sometimes we can trust God with a lot of things, but we struggle trusting God with our kids. We, a lot of times, and I will even find this as I pray for my kids, one of the things that we tend to pray for for them is for safety, for comfort, for security, for happiness. We pray for these things, and the more, though, that our kids get safety, comfort, security, and happiness, after a while, if we're not careful, they begin to create lives that don't even need God anymore. Whoa! So the other night, I can't believe my wife did this. We were talking about it. We were praying over one of our children, you know, and I was sitting there, you know, God, would you just help us to be able to, to walk with our kids and to trust and to faith? And, you know, and so I'm thinking I'm being super spiritual. And, and all of a sudden, my wife starts to pray over this child, and I'll never forget her words. Father, if this child needs to be scared out of their mind to get a greater grasp of you tonight, that's okay if you do it. Dang, girl, how do you pray for me, right? <laughs> this particular kid just gets scared at night whenever he goes to bed. So we're praying just over him, and I remember her thinking, she wants him to trust God more than she wants for him to be happy because she believes ultimately his happiness is found in trusting God. She wants our child to be able to trust him more than having a comfortable night's sleep. She wants him to trust God more than this child will be able to understand. But this God in his life, we need to quit praying for comfort and safety and security. Maybe the next time we pray for traveling mercies, we should actually pray for engines and stuff to break down so that we get real angry and we have to deal with sin inside of our heart. I don't know. My good friend, they went to go to a trip to Australia uh, this last day and over this last day, and they get to the front and realize that one passport is expired and it sent their trip into a whole new mess. And we got to have a conversation about the sovereignty of God. Right? I go, man, God must have wanted you to get frustrated. Oh, but church, let me just say this on a grander level. Have you ever noticed that most of our prayers when we sit around are about safety, comfort, security, and happiness? God, make me well so that I'm comfortable. God, get me through this so that I can be happy. God, make it safe as I go do whatever I'm doing. What if instead of praying that, what if instead of praying that way, what if all of a sudden we started to ask, God, would you do whatever it takes in this situation for me and everyone that I come into contact with to trust you more? That's what we want, God. 
And if you need to take us to the valley of the shadow of death so that we will learn to fear no evil, Father, would you take us down that path because we would rather trust you than anything else? God, if the bottom line, the core, the root of sin is not trusting you, God, dig out the root. Allow us to trust you. Don't you think things around Cornerstone might change a little? And so here's what we're going to do to finish. I'm going to bring the, the, the band up. And I want to just throw up these things real quickly, some takeaways while they come up. I believe our greatest battle is to rightly see God as a holy and loving king over all things. Would you this week pray for not only yourself and your family, but would you pray for Cornerstone that we might rightfully in a progressive, ongoing way, see God as holy, loving King over all things. Would you pray for our elders and our pastors that we would do that? This week, would you pray for VBS, that every kid that comes in here would start to rightfully see God as the holy, loving King over all things? Would you pray that fervently with us? Would you also realize that the greatest tragedy of the universe is that we tend to de-God God? God? Would you take this week and begin to look at your own life and ask the question, where have I found myself be God and God? Where have I found myself not trusting Him, but trusting Him myself? Would you also, the consequences is that we miss seeing God's power on full display in our lives. Would you then ask God, God, in the midst of all of this, would you allow me to trust you so that I might see your power on display? Father, would you allow me in those moments that I'm fearful to be honest to confess sin, Father, in those moments that I'm sitting there not sure what to do about the circumstances of my family or my marriage or even this nation on a grander level, would you in this moment allow me to trust you that I might see your power on full display in our lives? And this last one, God will allow us to experience the consequences that be God in God. If you're somebody in here that might have gone down this path because you have wrongfully placed yourself on the throne, and you want to deal with stuff, let me just say this. We're going to talk about this next week, so you've got to come back to hear this. There is no distance from which you can travel from God that His grace does not bring you back. Our God and His grace is greater than any sin. And so if you need to deal with that right now, knowing that you've wandered from God, come up, we'll have some people up here that will pray with you. Don't leave today. Please don't leave today without hearing me say, Our God reigns. He is in total and absolute control. And all God's people said, Amen.